Well, welcome back to my study. I read a column by someone recently and they started their column this way. I don't remember the name of the author, but they said this, what a year this week has been. Now that's profound. We could also go on and say, what a couple of years the last two weeks have been. And we could back up and say, what three decades the last three months have been. If you've been a part of this study that we're calling Fighting Off Fear, I've referred several times going back to March 1st. What was happening March 1st? Well, the United States had the greatest economy in the history of the world. We were just chugging along. We were doing quite well. We were, um, we were blessed. We were seeing jobs explode. You, you know all this. I don't have to rehearse it. And then, that was March 1st, greatest economy in the history of the world. By March 15th, the coronavirus or COVID-19, whatever you prefer to call it, was moving and had such an impact and it happened so swiftly. I remember uh, the NBA, I think it was on March 11th, stopped the basketball games just in the middle of the game. I mean, they just stopped and they shut it down and it's been shut down ever since. That was March 11th, I believe. By March 15th, uh, the nation was moving towards lockdown and social distancing and we're getting the hand cleanser and we're trying to find masks. And you remember that. By, all right, that's March, all right? By late May, we were starting to come out of it in some states and we were reopening and trying to get businesses back. You recall all of this. This was just a few weeks ago. Um, some states were reopening and some were still locked down. But on May 25th, and you all know this story, this horrible story, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. You, you've seen it. it it's horrific. It's, uh, it's wrong. It was wrong. It was evil. It, 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 tragic. It was sad. It was wicked. And suddenly we had another shift. Now let's just stop for a minute. When this Corona thing, when this COVID-19 thing was, was on our minds for months and months, I kept hearing people use the word, this is unprecedented. Everybody was staying at home. Businesses were closed. You could see the uh, web cameras of great cities. Nobody's in the cities. There's no traffic in the cities. If you had to go get a prescription, if you had to get on the freeway, there's no traffic. It was unprecedented. We'd never seen anything like it. And then when this horrible crime occurred, since then, everything changed. It's like, it's like, COVID-19 is kind of over. It's back page news. But suddenly, we're seeing something. We've seen civil unrest before, but what we're seeing right now, you got to again use the word unprecedented. There have been three responses. This is nothing new. I'm just summarizing it. There have been three responses to this horrific killing of 
of George Floyd. The first uh, response was legitimate and lawful and peaceful protest. I have a quote here from John Lewis, who has been around a long time, an icon of the civil rights movement. He stated just a few days ago, and I found this in Jim Dennison's newsletter. Here's the quote from John Lewis, rioting, looting, and burning is not the way. Organize, now he was with Dr. King, I believe. Organize, demonstrate, sit in, stand up, vote, be constructive, not destructive. History has proved time and time again that nonviolent, peaceful protest is the way to achieve the justice and equality that we all deserve. Now there's a wise man. That's been the first response. But as you know, there was a second response because those peaceful protests were hijacked by, um, it was a planned invasion, we're finding out, by whether you call them Antifa or Antifa, it was planned. And you've heard now the stories of pallets being found with weapons and bricks in cities all over the United States. So there was a method to this. They hijacked what was legitimate and turned it into uh, illegitimate anarchy, lawlessness. By the way, in Matthew 24, Jesus said one of the signs of the last days would be that lawlessness would increase. You look around, lawlessness is increasing on every level, on every front, in every area of society. So the second thing is that it was hijacked. Legitimate protest was hijacked. The third response is just simply what we've been seeing on TV here for quite a while. Rioting, looting, uh, killing. Perhaps you've seen the, the young woman on video who's just sobbing because her sister, they were at a peaceful protest, her sister was shot in the back and killed. And she's weeping and she's crying and she's saying, the police didn't do this, the police didn't do this. Someone in the protest did it. Uh, undoubtedly, one of those who was um, involved in the invasion attempt to destabilize a nation and the democracy. Rioting, looting, killing, that's wicked. That's evil. There was a New York City police officer attacked from behind last night uh, with a knife. Uh, you've read about all these attacks on police officers. Uh, you know this. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of good police officers and there are some bad police officers. There are a lot of good preachers and there's some bad ones. There, there are a lot of good CPAs and there's some bad ones. I don't care what it is. Whatever your profession is, whatever your world is, there's, there's some good ones, and then there's some bad apples. That's just life. I have been, I have been in two very frightening situations. When I was um, 19, I was on a college campus where I went, and there was a protest taking place uh, it was peaceful. As I recall, it was about Vietnam. And then I had walked past it and was heading to a class, 
And then someone got on the open mic, and this guy was a pro, this guy was an agitator, this guy knew what he was doing, this guy knew how to work a crowd, and before you know it, uh, he had them at a fever pitch, and suddenly that turned into a mob. And I watched it from a distance because I could hear it from a distance just before I went in to that library. And I watched that thing turn into a mob and I watched it turn into mob violence. And they took chairs and they busted them and they took the legs of the chair and they started heading up to classrooms. And I have to tell you this, there was a, there was, I could feel a palpable atmosphere. I could feel it like a pressure change in the weather. There was a palpable change atmospherically that descended and it was evil. It was pure, absolute evil because there was utter lawlessness spreading across that campus. And they went into classrooms, they attacked professors. It was out of control. It was demonic. That's what it was. When you see this, you have to understand what this is. There are spiritual forces. It is, uh, you know, there's a passage. I hadn't planned to go into this, but I'm, I'm going to go to it. There is a concept in Scripture called selfish ambition. And selfish ambition, there's a right kind of ambition, and there is a wrong kind of ambition. Uh, there's, there's an ambition. Whatever you do, Paul says, make it your ambition to please the Lord. So as we go through life as believers, we want to please the Lord. I want to please the Lord in how I do my work. I want to please the Lord in how I love my wife and how I provide for my kids emotionally, physically, all the things they need. I want to please the Lord. I want to be a good citizen. I want to honor Him. But there's a wrong kind of ambition. It's called selfish ambition. Let me read this uh, from James chapter 3. He says this. He's talking about the two kinds of wisdom. He says in 3.13 of James, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. That's the wisdom from above. That's the wisdom from God. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, uh, selfish ambition is the need to be first. It's the need to lead. It's the need to be in control. It's the need to have power. It's the need to have everything go your way. It's the need for you to be in absolute and total control and for you to achieve your agenda at the cost of anything regardless of what it does to other people, it's, it's selfish ambition. Now listen to the description. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, this selfish ambition, is not that which comes down from above, from heaven, but it is earthly, it is natural, it is demonic. Now watch this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. There's disorder. What are we seeing all around us? Disorder. And every evil thing. This, this, is, this is satanic. 
This is out of control. This is wickedness and this is evil. And don't be afraid to call it that. It is what it is. It's what the Word of God says it is. I, uh, that riot, I have never in my life, I, 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 ha- I almost said I had never in my life felt anything like that, but I have to back up. I was 19 when that happened. When I was 16, I spent the summer in the mountains of Jamaica on a nine-week mission trip, uh, 16 years old. And we were working with different churches and doing evangelism and holding some meetings and preaching the gospel. I, uh, I had some experiences there that I'll never forget. I remember one night at a church meeting in a small little church in the mountains that they, the service the folks were very demonstrative and that was fine. But suddenly there was a screaming in the back of the church, a screaming. And, and I want, I'm going to say this to you. I can only tell you this. I had a sense of evil. I'm 16 years old. I'm sitting on the front row and this is in this little church behind me. And everyone froze. And I put my head down and I said, Lord Jesus, if that is not of you, stop it now. And it immediately ceased. That has nothing to do with me. It has to do everything with him. I was just some young, scared kid who called the name of Jesus. And he stopped it. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's great power in the name of Jesus. A week or two later, we were in another mountain town, small village, you could call it. And, and we would stay with, um, in different homes. Uh, everybody was black. I was white. The team I was with, we were some white guys from the States. But we, I'll tell you what, we were in the minority, and I'd never been in the minority in my life. And I went into this little village, and I mean, it was small, uh, to get a cool drink. It was hot. It was July. I was just going to get some water. And the guy that was with me was, uh, he was, I, I don't know where he was. He was on the other side of the village. And as I'm walking into this village to get a drink, and I'm the only white guy, this guy comes up to me. He was a Rastafarian, big black guy. Rastafarians uh, are a cult. You can look them up. But they, uh, they would be in the hills. You'd see them now and then. I mean, this was a long, long time ago in the mountains of Jamaica. Sometimes you'd be on a trail and you'd see a guy just sitting in a tree. They smoked marijuana. They were high. Uh, they had the dreg locks, but they matted them with cow dung. I mean, these guys were rough. And this guy started to approach me and he told me he was going to kill me because he didn't like whites and he didn't want me there. And suddenly a crowd gathered, a crowd of black men gathered. That's not what you think. Those black men gathered not to attack me. Those black men gathered 
to protect me from that man. They were the shop owners. Most of them were Christians. And they formed a barrier between me and him, and they began to rebuke him and tell him to get out of town and leave me alone. And they stood up to him. And um, it reminded me later of uh, Micah 6 8, which I've scribbled down here. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? and to walk humbly before your God. Those men who protected me from that guy, that's what they did. And the vast majority of them were Christian men. Uh, but it gave me a sense later, and, and just that it could have been the same week or the next week, I and my guy that was with me, Greg, we were staying in the home of a pastor and his wife, and he had two daughters. Sweet couple, black family. And this was 1966, and in the summer of 1966, there was a lot of racial tension in the United States. And there were pictures on the front page of the newspaper that they would get from Kingston. And I remember sitting at the table with them eating dinner. And this, this, these people were great people. They, they loved the Lord, solid I mean, they loved the Lord. They were committed. They, they were the sweetest people you could ever meet. And I remember the pastor's wife looked at me, and there was this picture of, uh, of demonstrators, black demonstrators, and they were being um, beaten, and there were some dogs. And she said to me, Mr. Steve, she called me, Mr. Steve, why do the white people in America hate black people so much? I'll never forget that as long as I live. And I didn't know what to say to her. I, I, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was, you know, that was good for me. That was a hard summer for me. Um, it, it, it was very hard. I lost a lot of weight. I'd been lifting weights for football to get back for football season. And uh, I came home and I was, I was wasted. I was physically exhausted. In the big picture of things, that didn't matter. It was, it was high school football. I learned a ton. And the longer I lived, the more I looked back on that summer, and I learned all kinds of significant things. But uh, I learned what it was to be, I, I learned for nine weeks what it was to be a racial minority. And I learned that, uh, I learned things I never would have learned anywhere else. I couldn't have had that experience. That gave me some empathy. It gave me some sympathy. It gave me just a little bit of understanding. We are living in, um, we're living here, here's the word, unprecedented. We're living in unprecedented times. Absolutely unprecedented. We've had civil unrest. We've had riots before. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I, I was scrolling through some headlines this morning. And in all honesty, what I had to do was I had to fight to not lose heart. I really did. Because, hey, I'm just some guy sitting in my house in Texas. What do I know? But as I'm looking at all of this, you know what I see? I see a nation unraveling at the seams. I really do. We're falling apart. 
we are coming unglued. We are becoming increasingly fractured. Well, what does that mean, Steve? I, I don't know what it means. Uh, we're the United States of America. I, I guess, to be real honest, the question I'd have in my mind is, how long can we continue to be the United States of America? Now, I, I'm making no projections. I'm making no predictions. I'm just looking. Uh, it, it, it's like looking at a, uh, an old suit that's uh, 250 years old. And you're wondering, how long is that arm going to stay attached to that shoulder? Uh, the, the, the seams are about, the thread is about, you understand what I'm saying. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this, apart from the gospel and apart from the Lord, there's no hope. This is an issue of the heart. I remember doing a conference, being invited to do a men's conference in the deep south. I mean, deep south. And the Lord had been doing some great work in that town. And that town, oh, by the way, this is interesting. The town in which I was doing the conference was the town where the abuse of protesters was on the front page of the paper in Jamaica that the lady was asking me about. It was that town. <laughs> That's ironic, isn't it? I just thought of that. I'm doing a conference in that town, and the Lord had been doing a work. There was a long history of racial tension in that deep south town. Blacks had been lynched. Horrible things had occurred. But the Lord was doing a work. And we had black men, and we had white men, and we had black pastors, and we had white pastors. And we were talking about following the Lord. We're talking about following the scriptures. We were talking about following the Lord Jesus and taking responsibility for our lives, for our homes, for our churches, for our communities. It, 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 it was a wonderful conference. I remember at that conference, a man asked if we could meet for a moment, and we kind of went behind. We must have gone into a side room. And he was an older man, and he started pouring out his heart to me and telling me about his background, how he was raised, and telling me about his um, hatred for black people. And I, I have to tell you, I, I was shocked. I was kind of blown away by what he told me. I, I was a little shaken. He was in deep. But the Lord had changed his heart. And the Lord had changed his life. And if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And that guy had been converted. His heart had changed. And he was now one of the men working to try to reconcile with those whom he used to hate because of what Jesus had done in his life. And interestingly enough, a few years later, I was invited to go back there with my friend, Dr. Tony Evans. And we talked to a bunch of pastors, white and black, and the Lord was continuing to do a work. That's the only hope. The only hope is the gospel. Because our problem is in our hearts. That's the issue. Now let's back up for a minute.
Why, why was I uh, reading the headlines this morning and suddenly having a tendency to lose heart? Because what we see going on in this nation is uh, it's unprecedented, it's overwhelming. It's almost, um, it's changing so rapidly and it's changing so quickly. And there is so much division and there is so much strife and there is so much lawlessness up to the highest levels. There is so much corruption. And I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, I don't care if you're white, I don't care if you're black. You can see it on, you can see it everywhere. Can you not? Yes, you can. So I want to, uh, so then what I did, because I found myself, I really did, I found myself, I thought, you know what, I'm about to lose heart here. So, so what do you do when you're about to lose heart? Well, I turned to, I turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And, uh, you know, this series that we're doing is called Fighting Off Fear. When, when you start to lose heart, you start to lose hope. And when you lose hope, you start to get fearful. What's going to happen? How long will this hold together? What does the future hold? Uh, and, 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 you know, quite frankly, there's been a lot of loss for a lot of people over the last, what, three decades, which are actually three months. It just seems like three decades. Uh, I jotted a couple things down here. We have people who have... Uh, we, we've seen a lot. We've seen a loss of freedom. We have seen a, a loss of justice. We have seen uh, economic loss. We have seen some people losing their health. We've seen some people losing their lives over this virus. We have seen um, people losing their jobs because, as you know, I, I mean, businesses are shut down. Interesting, some businesses are still shut down, but in those same cities, protesters are not shut down. They can go anywhere they want, do whatever they want. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Kind of ironic, kind of concerning. Yeah. Interesting how some states which have been locked down and were sort of verging, quite frankly, on tyranny, now are verging on anarchy. That, that's just kind of remarkable, isn't it? This is what happens when you lose the fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of, tr of, of knowledge. And when you walk away from the fact that there is a God, I saw the Lieutenant Governor of Texas last night being interviewed on the news. And he said, he was asked about this whole thing of systemic racism and all of that. I was very proud of him. He said, this is an issue of the heart. And this is an issue for a nation that has lost its trust and belief in Almighty God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, Amen out loud. And I was in that living room all by myself. He flat out came out and told the truth. You're not supposed to tell the truth in this culture. Anything but the truth. But he nailed it. He went right to the heart. He went right to the root. When you deny God, when you deny God is there, it's going to wind up in chaos. 
it's going to wind up in anarchy. Just read Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. That's a description of where the United States is. We're there right now. Now, maybe I'm starting to make you lose heart. <laughs> well, you've got to look at the facts. And the facts, I mean, it was Jim Collins who wrote a book on business and turning business around. And one of his principles is, first thing you do is you've got to confront the brutal facts. Well, you've got to confront the brutal facts. So we've had people who've had a lot of loss. We have had people, maybe you saw the video clip of the lady, the black lady yesterday. And the looters were, they'd broken into her business and were stealing all of her inventory. And she said, doesn't my life matter? I'm black. I've worked hard my whole life to establish this business. And here you're coming along and you're stealing. Uh, she had some courage. She took it right to them. That lady has had tremendous loss. So we've had loss of homes, we've had loss of businesses, we've had loss of jobs, loss, you get it. So when all that happens, it's easy to lose heart. So because I was about to lose heart, it looked like I went to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. <laughs> I love that. Uh, 2 Corinthians is the most autobiographical book that Paul ever wrote. He tells a lot about what he went through, what he endured. And if you read this book, the stuff that Paul went through, the loss that he went through, the suffering, the hardship, the adversity, the floggings, the prison sentences, the, uh, the shipwrecks, it's astonishing. He goes on and says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. The treasure is the gospel, the glory of God, it, that the light has shown in our hearts. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the suppress, surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now listen to his description. And this, you, you may relate to this and where you are right now and all that's been going on for the last three months. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. When we suffer, it's for a reason. God has a reason every time there's hardship, there's adversity in our lives. Paul earlier says in 2 Corinthians that I went through this very, very hard time in, uh, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. I mean, he was worn out. But then he goes on and says in the next breath, but this happens so that we might learn not to trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Christians find themselves in very difficult circumstances where it seems there's no way out and there's no way hope, there's no hope and there's no recovery from what has been lost. But as Ray Stedman used to say, resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. Uh, Paul said, I, I learned that I might, so that I, through, I went through these things so that I would learn not to trust in myself, but in God who raises the dead. Wherever you are, whatever you have lost, the Lord knows about it. 
And he has a way of moving in. And um, the years which the locusts have eaten, he says, I will restore. Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians. And he says this. And this, this is prime rib stuff here. That was 2 Corinthians 7, which is also good, but what I really needed was 2 Corinthians 4. He goes on and says this, verse 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. He says it again. We do not lose heart. And he's had all of this incredible loss. But now watch this. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for a momentary light affliction, that's an interesting term, we'll come back to it. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So in other words, as believers, in these tumultuous times in which we're tempted to lose heart, um, we've got to make sure our focus is in the right place. I want to read a section from a chapter in a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. The book is called Setting Your Affections Upon Glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastor of Westminster Chapel in London for many, many years. I, 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 in my opinion, he was the greatest expository preacher of the 20th century. He, he preached to his congregation, Westminster Chapel, I've had the privilege of visiting there with, with Mary, is just, uh, you, you can walk to Parliament. Uh, now, that's Hitler-targeted Parliament and Westminster, and bombs fell all over that area. Um, people that were in his congregation on Sunday the next Sunday, they, perhaps their funerals had taken place because they were killed in the bombing or their children were killed in the bombing. These people were under unbelievable pressure. And he preached to them out of 2 Corinthians 4. Later, years later, he was preaching in Florida, a series of meetings, and Hurricane Camille was coming in, which was a treacherous and devastating hurricane. They had to move up the time of the meetings. And what I'm going to read to you, he preached as the hurricane was approaching. They still had time to get out. But nevertheless, there was another impending um, catastrophe on its way. L Lloyd Jones used to say, what's the acid test of the Christian faith? The acid test is when the bombs are dropping. That's the acid test. What do you really believe? The acid test is when the hurricane is coming. The acid test is when you might die. The acid test is when there's stage four cancer. And as the doctors just said to Robbie Zacharias, what, two weeks ago? There's nothing more we can do. And we're going to send you home. And days later, he died. And he's with the Lord. See, that's the acid test. So Lloyd-Jones writes this. He says, Christians, and it's the context of not losing heart. 
Christians have a different perspective. The phrases used are light affliction. When you first read Paul, he seems to be a mass of contradictions. He gives us this long list of his troubles. As we have seen, trouble on every side. He says he's perplexed, he's persecuted, he's cast down, uh, bearing about in the body the dying of Jesus. And then, having given us this terrible list, he looks at it and says, our light affliction. He calls all of this a light affliction. Light affliction, Lloyd-Jones says, it's enough to crush a man. It's an awful weight. It's unbearable. It is enough to finish him. And then Paul says, no, no, it's our light affliction. Surely you say, this, this is pure psychology. I mean, this is just wishful thinking. Uh, he's not facing the facts. Uh, his whole list condemns him. He cannot possibly call this a light affliction. But wait a minute. Watch what he says. The apostle does not say these things are light in and of themselves. That is not what he says at all. What he says is that they become light when contrasted with something else. Listen to him. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And then he goes on. The Apostle Paul has a picture. Do you see it? Here he is with the table in front of him, and on the table is a balance, a pair of scales. There is a pan on one side and a pan on the other side, and he puts in one pan his toils, his troubles, his problems, his tribulations, and down goes the pan with all of the unbearable weight. But then he does the most amazing thing. He takes hold of what he calls a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What he's talking about is heaven. What he's talking about is eternity. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us that at a certain point, he was taken up into heaven, and the Lord showed him heaven. And the Lord showed him what was there. Uh, and, and when he came back, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, which we, he asked the Lord three times to remove, and the Lord wouldn't do it. Uh, and the reason for that, I, I, every once in a while I'll hear somebody write a book or they'll say, I die, I went to heaven and I came back. And they spend the next 10 years, all they talk about is they went to heaven. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord took me to heaven and I saw things which a man was not permitted to speak. If Paul couldn't say, I know Paul went to heaven and God wouldn't allow him to speak of what he saw. So some guy comes along and spends 15 years telling me what he saw in heaven. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe him. Because I know Paul was there. It, so you know, what would happen to you? I'll tell you what would happen to me if God took me up to heaven and I came back. You know what would happen to me? I would, there would be so much pride in my life, I'd blow it up like a toad. Because none of my friends had been to heaven. Uh, nobody in my church had been to heaven. None of the guys that went to seminary, but I went to heaven. Yeah. So in order to keep him from exalting himself, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh that he lived with for the rest of his life. And three times he asked the Lord to remove it. And the Lord said, no. My power is perfected in weakness. I'm still going to use you, but I've made you weak. Back 
See, that's the eternal way to glory. He saw it. He knew it. What's going on right now is temporary. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the eternal weight of glory. So he says, take the scale, take the heaviness, take the hardship, take the loss of business, the loss of career, the loss of health, take it all. It's a heavy, heavy burden. But then on the other side, put the eternal weight of glory and it changes everything. Doesn't it? He says this. He says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are, are eternal. And Lloyd-Jones says, here is his secret. He sees into the glory by faith, and having seen that, everything else becomes light. Almost trivial. Everything the world has to give means nothing to him now. He knows that all can be lost in a second. And maybe you've lost everything over these last few months. If a hurricane comes, everything goes. In any case, death will not put an end to it all. He does not live for that. The things which are seen are temporal. Your homes, your cars, your wealth, everything can vanish in a flash. Leighton Ford is Billy Graham's, was Billy Graham's uh, brother-in-law. He married Billy Graham's sister, Jean. Ten years younger than Billy Graham. He worked with Mr. Graham for years and years, preached for him. I recently heard a podcast where he was interviewed. He's now 88. He is sharp as a tack. Sharp as a tack. And they were just talking about his years of ministry and the ups and downs and the hardships. And at one point, he mentioned that the hardest thing he and his wife ever went through was when their college-age son, who had a heart defect, was on the operating table. And he said, Sandy was very much like me. We were same temperament, personality. We were just best friends. And the worst moment in their lives was when the doctor came out and said, I'm sorry, we lost him. And that boy died. And it was crushing. And they had never been through grief. They had never been through loss like that before. That was years and years and years ago. And at 88, the interviewer asked him, how, how, did, how did you get through that? And he said, well, in Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, has to, has to cross a very, very treacherous river. And that was a treacherous river. But he said these words. He said, I have felt the bottom of the river and the bottom is sound. And he said, when life falls apart and there's all this loss and you get to the bottom and everything is taken away underneath are the everlasting arms. Jesus is still there and the bottom is sound. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. We don't have to fear. The secularist, we live in a secular society, don't we? Secular education, secular government, secular... You know what the secular individual believes? They believe that this is the only world that there is. Jesus said, there's another world. We don't have to lose heart. Let's just keep showing up, loving Christ, doing our work, loving our wives, loving our husbands, loving our kids. We follow him one day at a time. We'll be fine. Thank you, Father, for the truth that keeps us from losing heart. We pray for our nation. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of our nation. We pray for our president. We pray for the authorities that you would incline their hearts towards you. Righteousness exalts the nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. We ask for mercy. We don't deserve it, but we would ask for mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.